0: Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 this morning, Romans chapter 5. For the past four weeks, we've been preaching out of the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. We've been following a theme of the grace of God and its abundance, or could I maybe say its superabundance, over the Old Testament law, over the consequence of Adam's sin, over death. And it is summed up in a little phrase. It's used five times in verses 9 and 10 and 15 and 16. And now down here in verse number 20 and 21, five times in Romans chapter 5, Paul uses the phrase much more as he discusses the grace of God. And he is showing us that the grace of God is a superlative thing. In other words... Whatever there might else be in our lives, the grace of God can do much, much more. Let me tell you something, I'm thankful that the grace of God is an availing and overcoming thing. I think often about what the Word of God says in the book of Colossians chapter 2 when it talks about Christ's death on the cross, and it says He spoiled all principalities. You know, that word principalities, it's got a lot of connotations, but one of them that I thought was interesting is the idea of beginning. And uh, I like to think about the cross of Calvary and the grace of God. It can spoil all bad beginnings. You may be here this morning, you may have lived a rough life, but the cross of Calvary can overcome that rough life. You may be here and your life may be in pieces. Man, you may look back over, over marriages and families and mistakes and, and, a, and a life that's been rough lived, but I'm glad that the grace of God can spoil that beginning and can do something spectacular in your life Grace is a much more sort of thing. We looked at the much more of the sacrifice of grace. Grace has given much more for you than anything else ever has. We looked at the much more of the security of grace. Let me tell you something. If my salvation depended on my good works, I would not be saved very long. My salvation does not depend on my good works. It depends upon the free gift of God through His grace. And so it is a secure thing. We looked at the much more of the scope of grace. Uh, All of mankind was taken in uh, through Adam's sin, but all of mankind is offered salvation through the free gift of grace. Just as Adam's sin abounded unto all men, the grace of God abounds unto all men. Christ tasted death for every man. We looked last week at the much more of the state of grace. Let me tell you something. Uh, I don't regret one single day that I've lived saved as opposed to before I was saved. I promise you that the life that God has for you is far better than any life that sin or the world or the devil could ever offer you. It's a greater thing to stand in grace than it is to stand in good works. In Romans chapter 5 and verses 20 and 21, we have the last appearance of this phrase in this chapter. And it presents to us, we might say, a summary of all these things. And it presents to us the much more of the supremacy of grace. We might say this, the authority of grace, the ability of grace, how that grace has a greater jurisdiction than sin ever had. And Paul describes it to us in this way. He says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let's read that once more. It's just two verses. Let's read it again and then we'll pray. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we thank You for the time that You've given us. We thank You for this portion of Your Word that is set in front of us. Lord, we know this is all Your Word, but Lord, in particular, these two verses that are laid before us that we'll examine for these next few moments, we thank You for how true it is, how absolute it is, how relevant it is, how timeless it is, how inspired it is, and how preserved it is in front of us this morning. Help us to approach it with the reverence that is due and worthy unto your words. And we pray that your Son would be exalted through the preaching. Father, if there's any that are lost and undone, show them their need of Christ's salvation this morning. We'll be sure to thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we have studied through Romans chapter 5, I think sometimes, I know it helps me and it might help you, to see what Paul is writing as a logical argument that's being presented. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away from the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. I I am aware that uh, God breathed and inspired every word of this precious book. I'm thankful and I realize and I understand and I believe that God preserved His Word, perfect, inspired, infallible. Uh, I'm not trying to diminish that in any way, but I think that God used human instrumentality for a reason. And uh, inasmuch as he used a human being, and that was the person of Paul, uh, and inasmuch as there is an audience or there is a recipient to this letter, and that is the believers at Rome, we understand that Paul is laying out sort of an argument about these things. Let me tell you something. God uh, is not an illogical God. Now, His logic sometimes reaches into the realms of the supernatural and that which is not perceptible and tangible uh, to human senses, but that doesn't make God illogical. That just means His thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. It doesn't mean that there's no rhyme and reason to His thoughts and His ways. It just means they might be a little different than yours and mine. And so as we consider the logic of what Paul is saying, imagine, if you will, that he's sort of walking with you hand in hand, and he's pointing several things out. You know, we're part of the TV generation. Some say, I mean, everything's got to be visual, or we don't know what to do with it. And he's sort of walking along, and he's talking about what the grace of God has done for us. And he points out the fact that uh, the grace of God entered in. He said, you see that good man sitting there. You know, some folks might die uh, for that good man. And he points to another man and he says, that man's a righteous man. And there might be some that would look at him and see his life worth saving. Somebody, peradventure, might die for that righteous man. But then he points over to just a filthy old rotten nasty boy sitting there. I mean, nothing about him is appealing. Nothing about him uh, is, is impressive. And he says, but You see that feller there? That guy is a sinner. He's an alien from God. He is a rebel against uh, God's holy law. He is a hater of God. He is helpless to save himself. He says, you see that person there? That's the very one that God died for. God commendeth His love toward us. And He says, by the way, you, you look a little closer and you'll see that's you sitting there. That God commendeth His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he says, you know, if you look at that fellow and you think that God would love such a person as that, and that in that condition He would love him and die for him and save him, then surely if he's willing to do that, uh, He if He is willing to give that greatest sacrifice for him, if he's willing to give up so much to save him, then surely that fellow is secure. Surely God's not going to turn around. If he's done the easy thing, which is to pay for his sins, to right him with himself, to justify him with God, then surely he's not going to turn around and just throw him away. I bet that fellow right there, I bet he is a secure individual. And then he walks a little further and he says, you know, uh, really if you think about it, if God would save that man, and why did he save that man? He saved him because of his need. Let me tell you something. God didn't save you because of your potential. God saved you because of your need. He didn't save you because he really thought you was somebody, because you weren't somebody. I hate to tell you that, but none of us was somebody. We were all lost sinners. We had all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We were all wretched. We were all gone out of the way. We had all done things our own way. God did it because of our need. And he says, you know, if God would save that man because of his need, and all men are sinners, then I guess the salvation of God must extend to all men. Now, I want to be very clear. That doesn't mean that every man is saved. It doesn't mean every man's going to be saved. But what it means is every man could be saved if he'd come under the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's no clearer teaching in Scripture. He tasted death for every man, whosoever will. Any that come unto him, he will in no wise cast out. If the offense was unto death upon all, then the uh, free gift and the righteousness uh, is by faith unto all. So if he'll come to God by faith, then God will save him. He says, boy, grace must have a big old scope to it. I mean, it must just sweep everybody in, and the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, must have appeared unto all men. Then he says, you know, if God would do all that for him, and if God would do that for any individual, grace must be a pretty wonderful thing. In fact, the state, the station, the standing, the status of faith... What a man is when he's saved by grace and he stands in God's grace must be a remarkable thing. And he talks about how much greater it is to be saved by God's grace than it is to strive through your own good works. And he points at that fellow and he says, you know, God could take that man and if he'd come to him and, and, and he'd allow God to save him, he could take him and make him a new creature. He could justify him. He could change his life. He could transform him. And then as he's walking along, he says, I see all these things, but then something happens that gives me concern. He says, all of a sudden, this is a two-party deal. God loves him. God cares for him. Uh, God wants to see him saved. And that fellow needs to be saved. That fellow uh, needs to come to God for salvation. But there's a problem here. Though God wants to save that man, that man doesn't want God to save him. Yea, in fact, if you were to look at that man and say, don't you see all the filth on your body? He'd look around at himself and say, I don't see anything wrong. If you were to look at that man and say, well, what about all the mistakes that you've made in your life? He might say, well, everybody makes mistakes. I'm not that bad. And God says, I've got a free gift for you. It lays there perfectly wrapped with a bow placed on it. And all you must do is open it. And he says, I need not any gift. And so someone else has to be brought into the equation. Somebody has to convince that man that he needs to accept God's gift. Now, who is fit for such a thing? I want you to notice that the law appears in verse number 21. The Bible says this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now, we understand a few things as we consider that phrase, the law entered that the offense may abound. We understand, first off, that there's a pre-existing condition. How many of you are old? All right. Honest people this morning. Well, if you're old, or even if you're not old, but maybe have some health problems. Uh, Of course, now it's illegal to do this, I I guess. They just charge everybody more. But a few years ago, uh, if you wanted to call the insurance, and you were at such and such an age, and and you said, I want to buy an insurance policy, the first thing they would ask you, before anything else, they don't care your name, they don't care your income bracket, they don't care your social security number, they don't care the color of your hair, they don't care how big uh, your bank account is. The first thing they ask is, do you, sir, do you, ma'am, have any pre-existing conditions? You know what they're trying to say? They're trying to say this. We're willing to take things on from here on out. But if there's already a problem, we can't address that problem. In the same way, when the law enters the picture, you know the first thing he asks? He looks at this poor old fellow, and that guy agrees to sit down with the law of God and hear what God's law has to say, and the first thing that the law asks him is, what kind of condition are you in? Do you have any pre-existing conditions? That fellow begins to do what? He begins to examine himself. He begins to consider the state that he's sitting in right at that moment. you know what he finds? He finds this, that the insurance company didn't give him a pre-existing condition. All the insurance company did was show him a pre-existing condition. You see, before the law ever appeared, mankind was already steeped in sin. Back in verse number 13, the Bible makes it clear uh, to us uh, that uh, even though uh, the the law was not present, death still reigned from, from Adam until now. Uh, even where there was no law, uh, man still sinned. You see, it is intrinsic with man to rebel against God and against His commandments. God put mankind in a garden, in a perfect state, in a perfect condition, with a perfect job, with perfect fellowship, and said, there's one tree and you're to not go and eat of the fruit of it. And they said, boy, that's the tree that I want. That is humanity. That is our nature. That is our tendency. Understand something, that just because God shows you where you're wrong, that don't mean He made you go wrong. You see, we have a tendency, and, I, you know, I remember what it was like being a kid, and, and I imagine what it must like be like for my son. You know, a lot of folks, and one word that he's got down real solid is the word no. Sometimes we'll talk to him, he'll say, no, 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 no. He does it like that. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. One of the reasons that kids learn no so much is, is they hear it all the time. No, 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 no. And we constantly tell them no. You know, sometimes they probably get to feeling like we're the bad guy, don't you think? I, I remember when I was growing up, you know, every time I got in trouble, I mean, it was amazing. You know, I loved my mama and my daddy, I mean, all the time. But when I got in trouble, there's the most awful, wretched, horrible, mean human beings ever to walk the face of the earth. And that is human nature, to act and to behave and to think that way. Well, mankind's the same way. God comes in and He says, this is holiness. This is righteousness. And you say, God, how dare you intrude in on my life? Well, let me tell you something, friend. God is God. He has the right to you as His creation. He has not intruded in on your sin. Your sin has intruded in on His holiness. And He, by grace, is showing you your pre-existing condition. Let me tell you something. A person's lost and on his way to hell, whether he ever hears of God or not. Whether he ever hears the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's still lost and on his way. I know a lot of folks don't believe that. I know a lot of folks think that you, uh, you know, you've got to hear and then turn and then reject. Here's my problem with that. There's none other name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved. Let me tell you something, that ought to give us an urgency to missionary work. I'm aware that different people have different scopes of light and understanding, but let me tell you something, it's not enough to look up and worship the Son. You've got to look up and see the Son that sits at the right hand of the Father. You've got to see the One that died for your sins in your place. It's Him and Him alone. What did He say? No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. That's the only way. That's the only way. A man's on his way to hell before God ever shows him he's a sinner. A man's on his way to hell before he ever realizes he's got a pre-existing condition. The law entered, but the offense was already present. The offense did not come into existence when the law entered. It merely abounded. We see not only a uh, pre-existing condition, but we see a propagating commandment taking place. So why was the law given? If man was already a sinner, would it not have been better to just leave that sinner in his lost condition. I mean, how many of you have heard this before growing up? If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. That poor old pitiful boy that's so wretched and so wicked and so filthy. Wouldn't it be better just to pretend like nothing is wrong? Now, that's what religion does. Religion looks at that man and says, you're okay just like you are. Religion looks at that man and says, well, uh, you know, maybe if you try a little harder, you'll be okay. Religion looks at that man and says, you know, you're able to do this in and of yourself. But God doesn't do that. Instead, God sent His holy law for what purpose? Not to minimize His offense, but to emphasize His offense. The law was given that the offense might abound. And, you know, you still hear people do it today. It's funny. I understand we're under the day of grace. I understand that the Old Testament law has served its function. I'm aware of all the, But it's funny. People still do it today. You know, you'll ask people, you think you're a pretty good person? And what do they say? They say, yeah, I'm pretty good. I I never lie. I never steal. I've never killed nobody. I, I try to be a pretty good person. I try to, you know, they don't say I keep the Sabbath and I don't take the Lord's name in vain and I don't worship idols. But you know what they say? They say, I try to go to church occasionally. I'm a pretty good person. You know what they're doing? They're still looking back to the Old Testament law and the tenets of it and saying, I measure up pretty good. I measure up pretty good. But can I remind you, my friend, that the Old Testament law, listen, the Jews did not need a law to tell them that it was wrong to kill That has been an understanding. I mean, listen, uh, what happened when uh, Cain slew Abel? Uh, God said uh, to Cain, He said, "Uh, If thou doest right, will they not be accepted? And He said, And if thou doest not, sin lieth at the door. Mankind already knew it was wrong to kill. We understand the Old Testament law is not just those Ten Commandments that they're fighting so hard to keep off of courthouse lawns and off the walls of public schools. The Old Testament law was over 600 commandments contained all throughout the Old Testament. And you, my friend, you may claim that you've never lied, though you probably have. You may claim that you've never stolen, though in some capacity I'm sure we're all guilty. You may say that you've never killed, but I'm sure you've hated without cause. You may say uh, that you've never committed adultery, but I'm sure you've lusted in your heart. But let's say that you think all those things are okay let's say this fellow saying, I'm pretty good, I'm okay, there's nothing wrong in my life. Then God pulls back the veil on over 600 commandments and He says, have you kept the Sabbath without sinning? Have you given every sacrifice that must be given? Have you followed the dietary laws? Have you followed the moral laws? Have you followed the ceremonial laws? Have you followed the societal laws? And you know what we all have to say? We all have to say, no God, I'm guilty. Guilty. is what the law was given for. It was our schoolmaster, Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, to bring us unto Christ. It was not given to show us how good we are. It was given to show us how bad we are. You say, what does that have to do with me, preacher? I'm not a Jew. I don't follow the Old Testament law. No, but the Gentiles, they have a law unto themselves, the book of Romans teaches. And that's the law of conscience. The Bible says that even a man's conscience is a law unto himself. And you know what people say? When they say, I'm pretty good, they're saying, I'm pretty good in my own opinion. They're not saying I'm pretty good in everybody's opinion because if you talk to their spouse, you might hear something different. Amen? They're not saying I'm pretty good in every church's opinion because every church has different opinions. What they're really saying is to the person that matters most in the world, and that's me, I think I'm okay. And they think because they have appeased their conscience that they're somehow okay with a holy God. Understand that that conscience is given to the Gentile, to the unregenerate. That conscience is given to those even that didn't have the oracles and holy law of God to show them that we all violate our conscience. I don't care who you are, we've all done things, listen now, that we regret, every single one of us has. So the commandment was given to show him his need. And the Lord looks at this man and He says, you know, you've got this pre-existing condition... But then when you look at, when you let me check you out, when you let me look you over, I find all of these problems. And you know what that fellow says? He says, well, Doc, I guess I need some help, don't I? And the Lord says, now you're beginning to understand. We see a predetermined conclusion. The law entered that the offense might abound. Uh, the offense was already present. But until a man, listen, until a man knows just how bad off he is, he won't go for help. Uh, how many of you? Uh, how many of you are men? Anybody? A few of you. Okay. We're stubborn creatures, ain't we? Women don't say amen. All right. You don't need to go out of here and fight. <laughs> yeah, again. <laughs> As men, we're stubborn. Let me tell you something. If there's, one, if there's two places we don't like to go, we don't like to go to a gas station to get directions. Of course, really, we don't have to argue about that anymore because we even have computers with women's voices on them that we put in our cars that tell us where to go. There's something Freudian about that, but I, I'm not going to get into it. We don't like to go to the doctor, do we? We don't like to go to the doctor. Uh, I, you know, I think about Aunt B on Andy. She didn't want to go to the old Doc Andrews. And said, "Just say you're no spring chicken anymore." Anybody remember that? We don't like to go to the doctor. We know what they're going to tell us. We know what they're going to say to us. And oftentimes, we don't want to hear the reality. Hear, the, let me tell you something. I've known people that are that are that right now their body is in a grave, and they're with the Lord because they didn't want to go to a doctor. It's just how we are. We don't like to go. And here, you know why? Because inevitably we're going to hear that something needs to change. And you know, that's the reason that men hate God's Word. Listen, men don't hate the Word of God because it, 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 because it disrupts society. Men don't hate the Word of God because it's illogical. Men don't hate the Word of God because it's unscientific. Men hate the Word of God because it exposes them as sinners, that's why they dislike it. That's why they hate it. That's part of the reason that you see this explosion of other versions that have taken out pointed passages that point to a man's sin. Is because it's okay. It's a little easier. Take a little honey with that medicine. It'll make it go down a little smoother. But the Word of God reveals to you and I that we're lost sinners, that we're helpless, that we're hopeless, that only the grace of God can do anything for us. That's the conclusion that God's trying to bring us to. That's what the law was given for. It was given as our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show a man his lost condition, to show that poor fella sitting there that thinks he's okay, that he's not okay, that he needs Christ's salvation. We see in this passage that the law appears, and it's gotten that man in a lost condition. That's what the law does. The law condemns a man. But now, what must be done? We see that the law appears, but then all of a sudden, we see that love abounds. What the law had brought into the light, notice what it says: "Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace, Amen. <laughs> Amen. grace did much more abound. So much greater, so much faster, it superabounded man's lost condition." I thought about that verse. You know, there's a hundred thousand ways. If you're a preacher, you know. There's a hundred thousand ways to preach this passage. But I began to think about where sin had abounded in a sinner's life. What is it that sin really affects in a man's life? And how does grace remedy that? Now, remember, this old boy, we've got him in his lost condition. He's wretched, he's filthy, he's wicked, he's lost, and he knows it. So we've got him in that condition. What now can we do? to save him and change him and transform. Well, I thought about the prohibition that sin puts in a man's life and what he prohibits man from doing. Let me describe it this way. That man, he's lost and he's wicked and he's rotten and he knows it, but he still has a problem. That problem is this, he still can't get to God in and of himself. All throughout the Old Testament, the Bible describes for us, after the tabernacle, the, the plans were laid out and instructed, and, and uh, God had Moses uh, to gather the children of Israel and construct the tabernacle. The pattern basically stays the same. From the tabernacle to every temple that was in, in, in existence, there were slight differences, but by and large, the pattern always stayed the same. And it basically had three areas to it. It had a, an, an outer court in which pretty much anybody... Uh, could go, and then it had a holy place in which only the priests that ministered uh, could go, and that's where they did the bulk of their work, of the sacrificing, of the of the burning on the on the altar and things of that sort. But then, in the very heart of the tabernacle, there was a place that was called the holy place, or the holy of holies, and that place was a place that only the high priest could go, and he couldn't go in it every day, but one day out of the year, the high priest could enter into this holy. Of holies. Today, on your calendar that you've got sitting on your desk, it'll be called Yom Kippur. We know it as the Day of Atonement. This was the day uh, once a year when the nation of Israel had to make atonement for their sins that had been committed. And so the high priest, he would be given the, the sacrifice, and he would go behind that curtain, and he would minister, and the Ark of the Covenant was in there, and the mercy seat was in there, and the blood that had been shed would have to be applied to the mercy seat, and the Shekinah glory of God would sit down in that place and view that blood, and they would be absolved, or forgiven, or propitiated, or atoned, however you like to describe it, for the sins of the past year. Into this place, it was such a holy place that the high priest, when he entered, if he had sin in his life, God would strike him dead. And it, most of the old rabbinical writers, you have to be careful about that because old rabbinical writers are like old wives' tales. You can get, you can find anything, but. Most of them agree that it was common practice at that time that in the hem of their garment, the, the blue hem that would, would trail around the bottom. And by the way, there's a beautiful truth there. That was the covenant, you understand. That was the that, that blue hem, that pictured the covenant. Aaron said that they were to put that hem in their garment and it was a reminder of the covenant that they had made with the Lord. They would have to tie bells in that place. Those bells pronounced when there was sin there, just like the covenant, Old Testament covenant, pronounced when there was sin in a person's life. And so they would tie the bells in the hymns of their garments and a rope would be placed around their waist. You say, what's the purpose of this preacher? Because if that high priest went into that holy of holies and had sin in his life, they would listen as he ministered. They could hear the bells ringing. And if the bells stopped ringing, they knew and understood that he had been struck dead. And they would take the rope and pull his lifeless body out from that place because it was such a holy place that the presence of sin would strike him dead. That's the condition the sinner's in. Here's this holy God with a veil in between him and God. And he's unrighteous, and God is righteous. He's unholy, and God is holy. How can he get to him? What's the way to approach and access God? I shared this with you. I don't know if it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, but... The Bible teaches us there was a large uh, curtain that was placed in between them. You ought to study it sometime. Beautiful truths: the purple and the blue and the, and the scarlet uh, that was contained in that veil. It pictured different aspects of the Lord's earthly ministry, and uh, all the cherubs were embroidered, were embroidered upon it, which pictures for us the angelic uh, ministration that was all throughout the Lord's ministry. Angels would come and assist him and strengthen him. And there was all these beautiful truths in it. But that veil stood, and the Bible says this in the book of Hebrews, that that veil was given to block the way, to prohibit the way, to show that man that he could not go. Not just anybody could enter into the presence of God. And as that veil hung there, it was a picture, the Holy Ghost says in Hebrews, it was a picture of Christ's flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, you have to understand that the Old Testament law is just a shadow of the righteousness of Christ. Christ came and fulfilled and practiced and behaved in that righteous manner for thirty-three and a half years. And in the same way that that veil stood as a barrier, Christ, had He not died for our sins, would stand as a barrier. We can never live up to God's standards, and yet here is Christ incarnate in the flesh, and He's lived in righteous perfection, and He's kept God's standard. But then something happened. If Christ is the veil and the veil is Christ, there came a day when the veil rent. And it was the day when Christ was rent. Upon the cross of Calvary, He died in our place. And the Bible says that literally in the temple on that day, that that veil was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And access was given all of a sudden. So now let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Here's this poor old fellow, and he can't get to God. I mean, he tries to get to God, but he's not righteous. He tries to get to God, but he's got all this sin and all these problems. He tries to dwell in God's presence, but to be in the presence of God would have been a death sentence upon him because of his unrighteousness. So you know what God does? He can't come to God, so God just comes right where he's at. And he sends his beloved Son, and in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, the Bible says he condemned sin in the flesh. And he overcame the prohibition of sin. Man could not enter into the presence of God, so God entered into the presence of man. Uh, Man could not be like God, so God became like man. Uh, Man could not approach unto God, so God approached unto man. And you know, that's a pretty good picture uh, uh, of how things are even in this day. You know what religion is, don't you? That's man trying to get to God. That's man saying, maybe if I get baptized, I'll get to God. Maybe if I try to be a good person, I'll get to God. Maybe if I dress right or carry the right Bible or act in the right way, maybe that'll get me to God somehow. But God looks and says, all those things are vain. All those things fall short. Uh, But He looks at His Son, and His Son says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by Me. But any that come unto Me, I will in no wise cast out. Here I am. There's the free gift. He pushes it up close. He, uh, He flicks the bow. He says, there it is, if you'll accept it. And now that man knows he needs it. And he'll come unto God. The prohibition of sin is overcome by God's grace. The power of sin is overcome by God's grace. That fellow might say, well, you know, preacher, I'd I love to come to God, but here's the problem. I'm a failure. I've tried to do good before, but I can't do good. I've tried to behave righteously, but I can't behave righteously. Every time that I make God a promise, I break it. Every time that I turn over a new leaf, I just turn it over again. And it seems like Groundhog Day. Like I could just wake up. Every day is the same. I'm just a big failure preacher. What can I do about that? Well, you're right. Sin has dominion over you when you're a lost person. And you can try your best. Listen, I mean, you can you, you, you can cast out the devil. <laughs> and you can sweep the house. And you can get it good and clean. And you can shape your life up. And you can really tighten things up. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to sit down in that quiet clean empty house and you're going to say nobody lives here anymore at least before when the devil was here there was noise at least before when the devil was here there's movement at least before when the devil was here i didn't realize how bad things were you're going to say i just wish i had that devil back and you're going to go out and you're going to take seven more unto yourself the parable says you know that's what man does I'm gonna get right. When he gets right, he gets wrong. And when he goes wrong, he goes real wrong. What's the remedy? Sin has this dominion over a man's life. And it could be that the Lord looks at that fellow and says, well, you know the problem. The problem is that it's not just an external problem. You see, it's not just the, the, it's not just the, the, uh, the hair and the clothes and, and, and the appearance, not just the filth and the, and, 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 and the offensive odor. Those are products of a deeper problem. And he says, now, I I don't need to just change your outside, but he says this, I think I can probably change your inside. And maybe if I change your inside, that will produce a change on the outside. Uh, Old Brother Roloff, he preached the same message. He called it Dr. Law and Dr. Grace. And he told this story along with it. You you ought to listen to it sometimes. It's fascinating. He goes through the the whole situation. But he he describes a man that comes to a fellow by the name of, Dr. Law, and he asks the man what his problem is, and Dr. Law looks him over and he says, well, the problem is you've got a bad heart and it's terminal. You're going to die. And shocked, he said, a bad heart? Well, what can I do about that? Dr. Law, can you help me? Can you do something for me? And he says, oh, no, I don't do that kind of surgery. I can tell you what's wrong with you. I'm diagnostic. I can show you that your heart's bad, but I can't do anything to help you. He says, well, who can help me? Who can do something for me? He says, well... There's a fellow just across the hall, and his name is Dr. Grace. And Dr. Grace, he specializes in heart problems. And if you'll go to Dr. Grace and talk to him, just tell him that Dr. Law referred you, and maybe he can help you with it. And he goes and he knocks on the door, and Dr. Grace comes and he says, I just got here, I'm from Dr. Law, he told me that I don't have much time, my heart's bad and I need help. Can you help me, Dr. Grace says, well come in. And I'll see what I can do. And he comes in, and the fellow says, "Well, now, Dr. Grace, I got to tell you, I, I hope there, I don't have any insurance. I hope there's a payment plan or something, because I don't, I don't have any." Dr. Grace says, "No, no, no, I don't work for money. Your money's no good here. I don't need it." He says, "Well, well, well Dr. Dr. Grace, I, I I don't have a I don't have a primary care doctor. I mean, I can't I, I can't afterwards I I can't keep up with the maintenance of it. I mean, what am I going to do? There's got to be no, 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 no." Dr. Grace says, "Don't worry about that." Because you see, I'm not just going to fix your heart. I'm going to take your heart out. I'm going to give you a new one. And when I give you a new one, you won't have to worry about any kind of maintenance afterwards because it's going to all be new. And he says, well, Dr. Grace, what do I have to do? I mean, do I have to go home? Do I have to change my diet? Do I I need to go home and, and try to get my health in order? Dr. Grace says, no, no, no. There's no time to go home. You may not make it back. But he says, if you'll just lay right out on this table right here and sit back and quit trying to help yourself. And let Dr. Grace do for you that which you cannot do for yourself. He says, I'll give you a new heart, and I'll change the way you behave and the way you live. Brother Roloff went on to preach about how that God, when He saves a man, He doesn't just get him a set of rules to live by, but He imparts His Spirit to dwell within him, to lead him and to guide him in his life. It's not a guarantee that you're going to live in a righteous way, but it is an empowering to live in a righteous way. Uh, you have a choice in the matter. You, you don't have to live righteously, but now you can live righteously. That poor old fellow said, every time I try, I fail. But now, uh, God says, if you'll just quit trying and obey me day by day, then you won't fail because it'll be me doing it and not you. He overcame the power of sin. But then I'm glad He overcame the punishment of sin. You know, the Bible says this, that death passed upon all men in that all of sin, and the wages of sin are death. Even though a man might try to do right and live right and behave right and make promises to God, it doesn't change the way he's lived in the past. It doesn't change the punishment that's owed to him for that. And what can a man do about sin's punishment, about the wages of sin, which is death? Well, the Bible tells us this. In the book of Galatians, there's a curse upon those that don't continue in the... Old Testament law. That the law is not of faith, but it's of works. Uh, and that uh, cursed is everyone that continueth not uh, in, in the works of the book of the law. To continue therein and to do them, there's a curse placed upon him, And you know, the sinner, because he's offended a righteous God, he has a curse placed upon his life. And that curse is manifest in death. But the Bible says this, and there's a thousand verses I wish I could sit and quote to you. But can I share this one with you? The Bible says this, Christ hath redeemed us. From the curse of the law being made a curse for us. When he died on the cross of Calvary, he didn't just bear your sin, he became your sin. And where God reached back his hand to smite the sin and the sinner, Christ reached down and separated the sin from the sinner and became the sin and said, God, you were going to strike them, but strike me instead. God, you were going to judge them, but judge me instead. God, you are going to punish them, but punish me instead. God, they deserve death, but I'll die in their place. And through death, Hebrews chapter 2 says, He defeated him that had the power over death, which is the devil. We see that all of a sudden love abounds and overcomes what the law has shown and made to appear. But then what happens to that old fellow after that? Here he is, he's sitting there and he... He's got all this wickedness about him and he thinks everything's okay and then all of a sudden the law comes in and says, well, you're not really okay. You've got a pre-existing condition and and, and look at all these things that you've done wrong and you're really in a mess. And he says, you're right, I'm in a mess. And then all of a sudden the grace of God appears and says, you can't get to God, but I'll get to you. You can't live for God, but I'll live in you. You can't overcome God's punishment, but I'll bear God's punishment he changes and transforms his life. What does that mean for that fellow? He gets up off of his knees. He's born again. What now does life hold for him? Well, I want you to notice not only does law appear and love abound, but life awakens within him. And his whole life is different forevermore. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about it. But turn over to chapter 8. I want you to notice a few things here. I was going to walk us through chapter 7. God didn't let me, but I think he wants us to look at a couple things in chapter 8. Understand, too, that Paul is, is walking them through all these chapters as well, and he's showing them the result of the grace of God in the life of the believer. I want you to notice that for that fellow, there's several changes that take place. Uh, now, he may still sin, he may still mess up, he may still do things wrong. There may be some things that take some time to change, but there are some things that change immediately and never change back. They never reverse. They're always different. And I want you to notice a few of them. In Romans chapter 8... Look what it says in verse 1. There is therefore now, now, now that that fellow's been diagnosed, now that he's had his heart changed, now that he's believed on Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk after the flesh, walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, you remember He said, oh, I don't do that kind of thing, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I want you to notice that, first off, there's a change in jurisdiction that takes place. You see, what if that fellow goes back to the doctor what if that fellow goes back to the examination room and Doctor Law walks in and says, I want to take a look at you. Well, he immediately turns to him and he says, Doctor Law, you're not my doctor anymore. Doctor Grace is my law is my doctor now. Yeah, he's my lawyer too, that's right. He's my doctor now. Dr. Law says, no, but you, you, you don't understand. I, I, I need to look at you. And according to my charts, he says, yeah, but I don't live by your charts anymore. He says, but according to my records. And he, he, he flips the pad open and there's nothing there. He says, there's no more records you have on me anymore. Everything's been transferred into Dr. Grace's hands. And from now on, he is my primary care. And he is the one that I answer to. You know, the lost sinner, though he's condemned and revealed by the law, that matter is settled through Christ's death on the cross. All of those condemnations and all of those characterizations have been addressed and dealt with by the cross of Calvary. And now all of a sudden, there's, there's no condemnation to them who walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh. Now I will confess to you there's context to this verse. I'll confess to you that it does denote it's for those that walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Do you know Why? Because when you start going back to Dr. Law, he's going to start finding problems again. That's what Paul meant when he said, if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He says, all those things I tore down. Why? Because they condemned me. I don't go back to Dr. Uh, Law anymore because I don't need to be condemned anymore. I've already been saved. I've already been redeemed. And so now I only see Dr. Grace because he deals with me in my current condition. And he knows my current situation. You see, there's been a change in jurisdiction take place. And now the Old Testament law has no hold or no sway over us. You know what that helps me with? Listen now. Really listen to what I'm about to say. If the Jews have the Old Testament Jewish law and the Gentiles have the law of conscience, that tells me that just as a Jew should not measure himself by the Old Testament law, the Gentile should not measure himself by the law of conscience. Can I put it this way? Don't measure your salvation by your feelings. Because it ain't based on feelings, it's based on faith. The same things that, <laughs> the same things that God said uh, to the De- uh, Jewish believers in the New Testament uh, through the Apostle Paul, uh, that those things have been uh, blotted out. And that handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to them been taken out of the way, being nailed to the cross. By the same token, since you've been born again, it's not about whether you feel it or not. It's about whether He has kept His promise or not. And there's no condemnation if you walk in the Spirit. The flesh will bring you condemnation. But the Spirit sees that the flesh has been crucified with Christ, and you're walking in newness of life. There's a change in jurisdiction. I want you to notice there's a change in administration takes place. Look at verse number 5 of Romans chapter number 8. Look at, down through the next few verses. It says this. Now, you've got to remember, this fella, he wanted to get to God, but the law said you can't get to God. You've got all these problems. But now there's been a change in jurisdiction and, and Dr. Law, he don't get to tell him what's wrong with him anymore. But then we see that this fellow said, I want to live right, I want to do right, but I'm not able to do right. And so Grace comes in and says, well, you don't have to do it. It's a free gift that's offered unto you. How can it change his situation? There's a change of administration. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I have known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. Paul says, I was alive at one time without the law, but sin came in and condemned me. And he goes on in chapter uh, number 6 a little earlier to describe this battle, this struggle that he's having. Every time he tries to do right, he, he does wrong. And look down further in chapter number 7. He says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I, do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. He says, I'm trying to do right, but I find myself doing wrong. That's the weakness of my flesh. How can I do right? In chapter 8, he says this in verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. See, that's that's what we're pointing out. Can't be subject to the law of God. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If you walk in the flesh, you're going to find yourself a rebel. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He is none of His. There's a new administration taking place because now you're not uh, driven by the motions of sin working work in your members. Now, if you live in the flesh, you are, but if you mortify the deeds of the body and if you obey the leading of the Spirit of God, now all of a sudden you're under the sway and direction of God's Spirit. And now, listen, you don't have to figure it out. You just have to obey. Somebody say amen to that. You don't have to figure it out. You just have to obey. You don't have to understand everything God tells you. You just have to obey. You don't have to be able to sort it out. You just have to obey. When the Spirit of God says, do this, you say, yes, sir. I'll do it and I'll obey. There's a change in administration. Then notice finally and I'm done, there's a change in destination. I like what it says at the end of uh, chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. It doesn't just say with eternal life or in eternal life. It says unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me tell you something. I got in this thing by grace, and I'm going to finish it by grace. You know how I know? Because it's by grace. If it was by works, I might not finish it that way. But if it's by grace, if it's a free gift that's already been accepted, then there's nothing I can do about it. I got in this thing by grace, and I'm going to finish it by grace. I like to hear old Peggy. Sing with the McCameys. I know how I made it. I made it by God's amazing grace. Steps that were slower now have taken, each one by faith. Someday on Jordan's golden shore, you know it better than I do. I'll lift my trembling voice once more. I know how I made it. I made it by God's amazing grace. I finished this thing by grace because I started it by grace. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, what Paul said, uh, shall ye uh, now continue In the flesh and by the works of the law. No, I started this thing in grace and by the Spirit of God. I'll finish it by grace. Because that's what grace is. Grace is when God takes over when we finally allow Him to. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.